a two-stage model was beginning to emerge. First, Rodiman and Kutzbach suggested that an uplift of Tibet changed the movement of air masses and rainfall patterns, strengthening the Indian monsoon. The effects of that can be devastating, as people living south of the Himalayan mountain belt know only too well. Second, Raymo and others argued that the powerful monsoon falling on the Himalayas led to intense chemical weathering, stripping carbon dioxide from the air. Lower CO2 meant a cooler climate. But there's nothing to suggest that there's a limit to this process, a fundamental problem with the Raymo Rudiman hypothesis, as expressed by Berner. You'd run away until the whole world froze. The original paper by uh, Raymo and co workers, 1988, uh, specify that if we had uplift of the uh, Himalayas, uh, the carbon dioxide we consumed by weathering and CO2 would go down. Well, you can't just do this simply because you have to uh, watch out. You run out of CO2 very quickly. The Raymo Rudiman hypothesis took no account of the negative feedback mechanism, which keeps the Earth's climate from running out of control. And Berner's objection remains unanswered. If you listen to Maureen, she will tell you a story that you have a hard time arguing with. And if you go to another person, for example, Bob Berner, he will tell you a story that's almost completely at odds with Maureen, with what Maureen will tell you and give you good reasons why that has to be the case. And there's a real scientific problem. Is there really a link between uplift of Tibet and climate change? Studies of microfossils from the Indian Ocean have traced the changing intensity of the monsoon. It was greatly strengthened between seven and nine million years ago. What was Tibet doing at that time? Fossil leaves have characteristics which are indicative of the environment in which they lived. A few isolated specimens have been found by Chinese geologists on the Tibetan plateau. He said, this be it a willow stem or a uh, reed. They should be the plants on the riverbank of a temporary and uh, relatively humid region. And that seemed to be the Temp temperate. 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 Yeah. temperate. So you wouldn't find this today mm. in Kailash? He said that that's absolutely impossible to find this type of plants in the modern innovation or the attitude of commerce. And uh, there are other... The difficulty is that a wide range of fossil leaves is required to define the temperature zone of their habitat. And then to relate that temperature to altitude is problematic too. Another way of looking at the elevation history is to look for geological faults. Here, for example, the foreground terrain has slipped downwards, leaving what was once a cliff face now eroded into minor peaks. There are hundreds of normal faults like this in Tibet today, and this fault is active. There's likely to be an earthquake on this fault any time. So if we can date when these faults become active, that will tell us when this change took place, when the change uh, from building a plateau to destroying a plateau took place. These faults relate to the time when the Tibetan plateau had reached its critical altitude and then began to collapse. The time at which the fault was active turns out to be sometime between 5 and 11 million years ago. 
This is the same time that the monsoon strengthened. Scientists like Peter Molnar are now trying to establish a causal link between the two events. The forefront of science is a very fuzzy area, and one needs a balance of all kinds of uh, approaches. There have to be ideas drifting around, they have to be formulated and worked up well, and usually when they are, there still aren't enough facts. Then there are the rest of us who go out and try to find facts that test them. The next fault to be dated came in at 14 million years, which is older than the change in the monsoon. Contradictions remain.